0: Hello, and welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond, a podcast from the Lakeshore Museum Center. Today's episode takes a look at a little-known crime in downtown Muskegon, the 1930 bombing of the Regent Theater. This story has twists and turns and a possible connection to an organized crime ring planning theater bombings throughout the state. Our story begins in the early hours of March 17, 1930. At 4.40 a.m., an explosion rocks downtown Muskegon. Sergeant Clarence Jacobson of the Muskegon Police Department felt the tremors in City Hall and, assuming it was an earthquake, dispatched officers throughout the city to check for damage. Dr. Roy H. Holmes, who resided in an apartment near the Regent Theater, also assumed the shaking was an earthquake, so he went outside. It was then that he saw smoke coming from the Regent Theater and phoned police to tell them what he saw. Upon arriving to the theater, police and firefighters found a building full of smoke, dust, and acrid fumes. There was no fire, as the initial explosion had burst several water pipes throughout the theater. Using flashlights, they discovered that an explosive device had been placed near the sound reproducing equipment on the right center side of the stage. Damage was extensive to the building. Wasserman's flower shop occupied the front store area of the building, and all of the glass was blown out of their windows onto the sidewalk in front. There were cracks in the plaster throughout the building. Under the stage, VitaPhone sound equipment, scenery, and dressing rooms were damaged by the water from burst pipes. Muskegon police suspect that there might be a tie to two theater bombings that had occurred a few weeks before in Grand Rapids, but they have no evidence. Two days later, on March 19th at 1 a.m., the Grand Rapids Wealthy Theater was bombed. This bombing went differently from the Muskegon region bombing. First, it injured a girl who lived in an apartment nearby. Second, there was a witness. Grand Rapids police had an unnamed informant who stated that he saw two men place a package in the vacant lot next to the Wealthy Theater five minutes before the explosion. The informant was able to give police a description of the men, the vehicle, and the license plate. Michigan State Police later stopped this vehicle with the two men inside. A search of the car found dynamite and a detonator for a future bomb in their trunk. The two men, 38-year-old Roe Lawton and 26-year-old Frank Chamberlain, were quickly arrested and charged with the wealthy theater bombing. Eventually, Lawton and Chamberlain both confessed to this bombing, but denied any involvement in the Regent Theater or the other two Grand Rapids theater bombings. The investigation led police to a farm owned by Malcolm Roselle, a former theater projectionist. In an old chicken coop on his farm, police discovered 200 sticks of dynamite that Lawton and Chamberlain had stored there with Roselle's permission. Roselle told police that the two men came to get some of the dynamite on March 18th, a few hours before the wealthy theater bombing. Both Lawton and Chamberlain were found guilty and sentenced on March 27, 1930 for the Wealthy Theater bombing. Lawton received 25 years in prison and Chamberlain got 20. During the weeks of the Wealthy Theater investigation and trial, the Regent Theater case went unsolved. With a lack of confession, little evidence, and the dynamite being gathered the day after the Regent bombing, there was nothing to connect Lawton and Chamberlain to the Regent Theater case. On April 4th, 1930, Muskegon police finally received a tip on the Regent Theatre case. A young 20-year-old Grand Rapids man, Ray Ruxman, told police that he drove Lawton and Chamberlain to Muskegon the night of the Regent Theatre bombing. This led police to charge Lawton and Chamberlain with the bombing, and a conspiracy charge was given to Ruxman. Chamberlain tells police that he wasn't involved in the Regent bombing. He waited in the car. It was Lawton and another man who placed the explosive in the theater. After being questioned further by police, both Lawton and Chamberlain told the whole story, even admitting their own roles in the crime. These confessions opened up a whole conspiracy that went far beyond Lawton, Chamberlain, and Ruxman. You see, as movie technology advanced, less skilled projectionists were able to be hired at theaters. This led to labor disputes across the country between theaters and projectionist unions. Throughout the 1920s, incidents linked to the projectionist unions were disrupting theaters across the United States. It started out with stink bombs and other nuisance pranks before actual explosives were implemented. Both Lawton and Chamberlain were members of local projectionist unions. Based on the confession from Roe Lawton, Arrest of local union men in Muskegon, Grand Rapids, and Grand Haven occurred. These arrests included three men from the Grand Rapids Projectionist Union, President Adam Pruss, Business Agent Donald Clark, and Financial Secretary William Bauck. According to Lawton, Clark gave him money to hire a gangster to do the February bombings in Grand Rapids. All three of the Grand Rapids Projectionist Union men were found not guilty. This not guilty verdict also meant that the Grand Rapids Projectionist Union itself was cleared of any connection to these bombings. Bart Denman, the former business manager of the Muskegon Picture Operators Union and Projectionist at the Grand Theater in Grand Haven, was acquitted in November of 1930. Lawton said Denman knew about the bombing ahead of time. Denman said that he was approached after the Regent bombing by Lawton and Chamberlain. Denman said the two men were drunk and expected money from the Muskegon Union for their work. The gangster that Lawton hired to do the bombings was Lee Blue from Detroit. He was arrested and was found guilty of those two theater bombings in February of 1930 in Grand Rapids. Lee Blue was sentenced to 25 years in prison. For his role, Ray Ruxman was sentenced to five years in prison, but was paroled after one. In 1932, Frank Chamberlain was granted clemency for his minor role in the bombing, since he was never identified as having placed any of the explosives. He was just at the scene and was involved in the planning. So he was then paroled from prison. In 1934, the Blue had his sentence commuted from 25 years to seven, making him eligible for parole in 1937. Unfortunately, I could not find in the record whether or not he was paroled that year, or if he was imprisoned for longer. In 1935, Roe Lawton had his sentence commuted to 10 years by Governor Frank Fitzgerald. The commutation came after a recommendation by Judge Verdier, who originally oversaw the cases. Part of Verdier's reasoning was the commutation of Blue and Chamberlain. This made Lawton eligible for parole in 1937, which was granted. Of the men who were found guilty and imprisoned for these crimes, Roe Lawton comes up the most in the historic record. He was a star witness for the police and for the prosecution during the cases of the other men, so he's frequently in newspaper records. He also had a few brushes with the law after his parole, mostly for drunken driving cases in the later 1930s. After the 1940s, all of the men involved in this crime largely disappear from the historic record. The Regent Theater itself was reopened after repairs and continued to be a downtown Muskegon Theater staple until its demolition in 1972. Thank you for listening to this episode of Muskegon History and Beyond, and we hope to see you back here next time.